now, The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. This is The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. Thanks for listening. Our show is brought to you every week in part by Denise Webster, mortgage broker with Dominion Lending Center's Modern Mortgage Group, Carrie Augustini, insurance manager for Island Savings, Carrie Smith, home inspector from InspectTech, and the team at the Sitka Law Group for your real estate, wills and estates, corporate and personal injury needs. If you need an opinion from experts in insurance, mortgages, building inspections, or legal matters relating to real estate, Denise Carey, Carey, and the Sitka Law Gang are great people to talk with. Just visit the CFAX 1070 website, look under Shows. There you'll find us, the whole home show with me, Tony Joe. All the contact information is there. Or you can always find me online or on social media, and I'd be happy to introduce you. I've been the host of this show now for some time, and I love coming here every week to share with you all things real estate, uh, things that are going on out there in the marketplace, things that we are bumping into as realtors, and what our consumers, either buyers or sellers, are experiencing on a weekly basis. I've been doing this now for 28 years. I have helped uh, hundreds, actually thousands of people with their real estate transactions here in Greater Victoria. Uh, if you are looking for an agent, you're thinking about buying or selling uh, in the marketplace and would like an expert opinion and some advice, I'd be happy to help you. Feel free to give me a call. My team is the Prime Real Estate Team. You can find me at primeteam.ca. We are here to serve. On October 17th, 2018, the government of Canada legalized cannabis. So what that means is that people are able to purchase cannabis. Of course, we call it other things too, pot, marijuana, whatever it is. Uh, they have legalized the growing of cannabis in homes. But this does bring up a whole bunch of issues and concerns surrounding things like resale and purchasing properties that were previously used as grow operations. We have with us today the, the Managing Director of Think Lab Legal Education and Training, Michael Litchfield, who will be talking to us about things that are happening out there in the world of now legalized cannabis. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. Uh, if you are a landlord and you have tenancy agreements with tenants, you're going to want to listen to this one because we're going to cover uh, whether or not non-smoking restrictions or bylaws, also in stratas, cover the use of non-smoking marijuana or vaping as well. So it's going to be a very, very interesting conversation. We start our show every week with a weekly listener question. If you have a question about real estate or if you have a story to tell us or share with us about your experience, either buying or selling or even things while owning your home, give us a call. Our hotline number is 250-414-6540. That's 250-414-6540. Or of course, find us on the CFAX 1070 website. <clears throat> we had an email from Errol uh, last week, and his question is, how does one establish the value of a condo? Assessments in my building are all over the place and without logical pattern. Great question, Errol. Uh, first of all, it's, it sounds to me like you are, uh, or you looked up the assessment uh, values of all of the units in your building. Uh, we talk about this quite often, and every year uh, we have our panel of experts uh, come during the assessment uh, process, uh, uh, British Columbia Assessment Authority process, which is usually the first week of January. Uh, and the common theme is the assessment does not 
reflect what a property is worth. And one of the reasons for that is because uh, there are over 2 million properties out there in the province of British Columbia. Uh, they don't have enough assessors to go and assess properties every year. So the majority of assessments are guesswork. They just basically take the past, uh, the most recent, I'm sorry, uh, sale of the property and they apply formula based on increases or decreases in that specific marketplace, and boom, there we go. That's the assessed value. That's the reason, Errol, why in your building you'll see values all over the place. So first of all, we do not use assessments as a sole method of establishing value. What we do is we have a look at a number of things. So the first thing is we have a look at other sales in your building. Uh, now, consumers use realtor.ca, which is a very, very... Uh, um, uh, well-used and informative website, and it shows you units or properties that are currently listed for sale, not just in Victoria, but across Canada, actually. It's one of the benefits that we have uh, in Canada versus in the States. The States doesn't have that, by the way. Uh, so Realtor.ca only, however, posts current listings. So what, what you don't know as a consumer is, number one, if the units if the unit sold, and secondly, what the unit sold for, and thirdly, how long it took the unit to sell. Of course, we as realtors, we have access to that information. We have the actual MLS system. Realtor.ca, by the way, is not the MLS system. Uh, it is a portal to our MLS system. So we have all that information. A realtor will go and have a look at the recent sales in your building. We need to apply a number of things. For instance, um, uh, comparing with similar units of size, similar units of features, whether it's a two-bed, two-bath, or two-bed, one-bath. Uh, then we look at other things, attributes like uh, exposure, elevation, views. Uh, all of those things have value uh, uh, propositions. Um, the thing that realtors have as an advantage over our colleagues in the Appraisal Institute, uh, appraisers use past listings as comparables. Realtors actually can have, have typically gone and physically viewed properties when they were on the market. So we often are able to give an impression of, well, that unit, the owner was a cigarette smoker, so the place smelt smoky. Uh, the, it was a dark unit. Uh, you know, it was in a back corner or whatever. So those are things that we use uh, to help establish the value within your own building. But the next thing we do is we open up a little bit and we have a look at similar sales in surrounding neighborhoods. So we will look at similar vintage buildings. We, of course, will always compare like buildings. So, for instance, if you are in a four-story wood frame building, we would never compare it to a 17-story steel and concrete building because those two have very distinctly different values. Uh, those are just a number of things that we do, but we always compare condo to condo. We, of course, would never compare a condo to a single-family detached house. Those are two completely different sectors. Um, it, it, sometimes we will look into things like uh, upcoming projects that the building uh, is looking into. So if it's an older building, if it does require a new roof or a new uh, parking uh, membrane, uh, or, for instance, if there is a special assessment coming up, uh, those are things that all factor into value as well, too. We see these buildings where there is a uh, $60,000, $80,000, $100,000 per unit special assessment coming up for remediation in the building. Of course, that will have a direct impact on the evaluation of your unit. That's just some examples of how we establish a value, Errol. But, you know, the, the bottom line is uh, it's not unfortunately, as easy as 
as you, a consumer, doing research online and trying to establish value. There are so many factors at play when we do establish value. Um, oh, one thing that I forgot to mention, too, is we also look at things like bylaws and restrictions, whether or not it is um, rentable, whether or not it is transient zoning, which allows for uh, short-term vacation rentals, for instance. Um, big ones are pets and kids. So, um, you know, there are buildings that uh, allow pets that oftentimes have, uh, they do better with resale than ones that don't because, of course, it is open to more people who are able to, uh, to purchase them. So many things to consider. Um, speak to your realtor, uh, Errol. If you don't have one, I would be happy to, uh, to chat with you. Um, but uh, those are just some of the many factors that are involved in establishing value. Uh, again, to the rest of our listeners, if you have a question that you'd like us to address on air here uh, or a story or experience that you'd like to share with us, there's so many fun stories. Man, I've been at this for 28 years, and i got to tell you, I have bumped into so many interesting things. Uh, goodness gracious. Share them with us. Give us a call, 250-414-6540. That's 250-414-6540. Uh, or again, find us online, cfax1070.com. We'll be talking today about the legalization of cannabis and how it relates to you, uh, either as a homeowner or a tenant or a landlord, uh, whether or not occupants can grow marijuana in the property, whether or not occupants can smoke marijuana in the property and how it will affect your neighbors in Estrada, for instance. So many things we'll be covering with Michael Litchfield, who is the principal at Think Lab Legal Education and Training. It's going to be a really interesting conversation, but we have to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to be picking up on legalization of cannabis. You're listening to The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Thanks for coming back. You're listening to The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. Cannabis was legalized in Canada back in October, and it's raised a whole bunch of questions relating to real estate, specifically people's use of cannabis products and also the growth of cannabis plants. Seems to be a fair amount of confusion out there, but we have with us today uh, an expert in the area. Uh, his name is Michael Litchfield. Michael is the managing director of Think Lab Legal Education and Training. Uh, Michael, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, Michael, tell us about your background. You are a lawyer. Um, you're no longer pr uh, practicing in practice, right? Yes. Yeah, so I call myself a recovering lawyer. Um, I um, am a lawyer, a corporate commercial uh, lawyer by background. Um, but my time uh, these days is spent in the education field. So I do work with some uh, universities uh, teaching real property and corporate commercial related topics, um, but also work in the private sector uh, working with uh, professions like uh, realtors, lawyers, and uh, also doing a lot of work in the cannabis field. Yeah, and uh, so certain, so some of the things that you do is you do, uh, for instance, governance-related um, uh, issues, Societies Act in, in uh, British Columbia. Uh, you've done, done some work for the Real Estate Board. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, doing lots of work sort of in, in the corporate commercial realm uh, with boards, uh, also in uh, with regulated professions. So again, lawyers, realtors, engineers, doctors, those uh, kinds of professions. Mm -hmm. uh, and then just uh, I've been working actually in the uh, drifting smoke field for a number of years in regards to tobacco, and okay. that brought me into the into the cannabis world yeah yeah oh and and of course we ended up doing a, a a little bit of work together for the british columbia real estate association 
which was doing a, a series on uh, cannabis education for uh, realtors. Not the use of cannabis, <laughs> no. but the, but uh, cannabis related to, to real estate, which we're talking about today. So you and I actually uh, had had uh, filmed a video, which is uh, on the British Columbia Real Estate Association's YouTube channel, mm-hmm. uh, and we're talking about um, uh, things we'll talk about today, which is what consumers need to know about uh, cannabis uh, growing and usage and things like that in their personal spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the really interesting things about the cannabis field is what a, uh, a broad application uh, that it's had in regards to law. So if we're just looking at the specific area of, of property and real estate, um, cannabis impacts uh, those living in, in rental homes, it, it impacts uh, stratas, it impacts uh, those who, who own their homes who might wish to to grow, uh, but they don't want to damage the, their homes or the, the future value of their homes. So there's really a broad application of this uh, of, of this area. Well, so it was October 17th. That was the day that uh, cannabis was legalized That's in Canada, correct. right? And in the states, I think it's legal in 10 states now or something? Yeah, it's a, it's a moving target. So okay. I, it's about that number, yes. Yeah, and we've come a long way because, I, I, oh my goodness, I mean... Uh, People often talk about the fact that British Columbia, you know, we're known for our cannabis use. Mm-hmm. I'm not a user. You know, people <laughs> are, people aren't. Um, now, up until October, one of the questions in the real estate property disclosure statement was whether or not the property had been used to grow marijuana or illegal um, uh, uh, drugs. Right. And, right. and the key word there being illegal. Yes. Yeah. And it, I mean, our clients always kind of give us a little laugh about that, especially the seniors, you know, because we, we've got to ask this question. We go through this form with every seller, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we go, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, has this been used to grow medical, medical, or has it been used to grow illegal marijuana? And of course, the seniors always, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. laughing, right? Um, but tell us why that question was on the disclosure statement leading up to October. Sure, it was, it was really because of the issue of uh, illegal grow ops. So illegal grow ops, um, we, we've probably all heard about them on the news. Um, what was happening was uh, individuals were using residential properties uh, and essentially turning them into large-scale grow operations. So uh, in many cases they would uh, remove uh, walls um, and build quite sophisticated uh, growing rooms uh, and, and grow large volumes of marijuana in these homes. But basically like a greenhouse, but in the house using uh, uh, lighting systems. Exactly. Right. And I mean, I, I grew up in a residential area in, in Richmond, and uh, there were homes in, in the neighborhoods that uh, that we that I grew up in that you would never have known uh, what were producing large volumes of, of marijuana. Um, and, and ultimately, what would happen is a significant damage to these homes. Uh, and there would be mold issues. Uh, there would be dis- destruction issues, electrical issues. I mean, the 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 list goes on and on uh, to to the point some of these homes could not be remediated. So hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage, and just and not safe for uh, for somebody's health. Absolutely. I mean. And from many uh, from many angles, whether it was electrical issues or whether there were mold issues, spores in in the air, uh, and and still to this day we don't have a, a remediation standard, so it was very hard to actually do anything about this. So that's why that uh, that question made its way into the disclosure statement. Well, let's 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 parse out some of the things that you just mentioned. So first of all, electrical. Mm-hmm. So how is it that electrical uh, systems could be an issue in what was a grow up? 
Well, what would happen is that the electrical um, uh, bones, essentially, of, of a residential house are not up to the task of running all of the lights and all of the fans and all of the various uh, uh, pieces of equipment that were necessary. So essentially, people were uh, rigging these homes with uh, with more powerful uh, electrical components, essentially, but, but it wasn't always done uh, up to code, let's just say. Well, because we have to realize <laughs> that all this is covert. Like, because yes. it's not legal, all this is done uh, without permits. Nobody's going to... An electrical contractor and no. saying, hey, I need, you know, big electrical panel to handle all the stuff. So mm-hmm. so what you're saying is a lot of times this is jury rigged. People are just Exactly. And it wasn't necessarily set up for long term, you know, they're not looking at 20, 30 years of use here. It's can they can they get uh, as much use as they can before they have to shut it down and possibly move. So, you know, again, if you if you've seen pictures of some of these homes, there there are holes in the walls. Uh, they're yeah, they're not they're not made out. for living. They, no, they 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 really took residential homes and turned them into indoor farms. Essentially, yeah, indoor yeah. greenhouses. Yeah. My goodness. Okay, so that's the electrical side. The other thing that you mentioned is um, uh, spores, mildew, uh, moisture, and all that. So. Why is that? So the essentially you're growing a, an agricultural come on an agricultural plant here. So it'd be like you're growing uh, tomatoes, uh, for instance. And and plants uh, they they require moisture. They give off moisture. Uh, and and certain um, you know marijuana plants themselves they they can tend to give off a fair amount of uh, moisture. That moisture needs somewhere to go if it's not properly vented, which most of the time it was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it would go into the walls, into the drywall. And you would you get the development of mold and and other uh, other issues that would would harm people's uh, lungs or, or um, you know, make it difficult to breathe. Yeah. So so fast forward, moving forward, uh, there have been instances where these uh, prior grow ops entered the real estate market as homes for sale. Absolutely. And the reason why, getting back to where we started with this conversation, the reason why we ask on the property condition disclosure statement whether or not a house was previously used as a grow op, for instance, is because there were cases of these houses that came onto the market, they had been, they had been fixed up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a coat of paint, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some drywall work, uh, whatever, but that does not mean that they were safe for, for use. Absolutely. So, you know, the issue is remediation. Can we take these homes that were used as, as grow operations and, and make them safe uh, for people to reside in. And, and as I mentioned, there, there really are not any uh, provincial standards in regards to what a remediated grow-up would look like. There are some municipalities that, that put in some standards. Uh, I believe the city of Surrey was one of those. Um, but there's no broad provincial standard as to what a remediated property looks like. So uh, that makes it really difficult for the average consumer to, to make, a, make an informed decision of whether they'd like to purchase a home that, that might have been used in the past but no longer is. Yeah. Is it now safe? safe for, for habitation. Well, and, and, and therein lies one of the issues because typically these houses, because they can't sell like a normal house in the marketplace, so they can be purchased for cheaper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of our listeners, their ears may have perked saying, oh, does that mean I can get a cheaper house? Mm-hmm. But the problem is that doesn't mean that it's an opportunity. Absolutely. Well, the issue really is, is what, what's lurking, um, what's lurking, quite literally what's lurking behind the walls. Uh, and it's often mold uh, yeah. that, that can't be properly uh, dealt with without some level of ex- you know, high expense. Well, listen, we have to take a quick break here. Um, but before we do, I, I think the catchphrase is once a grow up, always a grow up. 
Uh, currently, without our any sort of remediative standards, I would say it's 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 pretty. I would uh, yeah, lots of caution with those properties. We're here talking today with Michael Litchfield. Michael is the managing director of Think Lab uh, Consulting. Uh, we're gonna take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Now the whole home show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Thanks for coming back. You're listening to The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. Our show is brought to you in part by Denise Webster, mortgage broker with Dominion Lending Center's Modern Mortgage Group, Carrie Augustini, insurance manager for Island Savings, Carrie Smith, home inspector from InspectTech, and the legal team at the Sitka Law Group for your real estate, wills and estates, corporate and personal injury needs. If you need an opinion from experts in insurance, mortgages, or building inspection, or legal stuff, Call Denise, Carrie, Carrie, and the Sitka Law Group. They are great people to chat with. You can visit the CFAX 1070 website. Look under shows to find us, The Whole Home Show with me, Tony Joe. And all their contact information is there. Or feel free to reach out to me. I'd be happy to connect you. Uh, just as a reminder, our show is podcasted too. So if you're a podcast listener, uh, just look for us on iTunes or Google Play. It's The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe. Uh, and again, if you have any questions that you'd like us to, to discuss on air, uh, or if you have a story about real estate that you'd like to share with us, please do so. Call us. The number is 250-414-6540. That's 250-414-6540. Or you can find us on the CFAX website. Uh, I read a report. It came out uh, just a couple of days ago from on Biz Women. This is bizjournals.com. It says here, uh, legal marijuana lifts snack sales. So researchers from the University of Connecticut and Georgia State University studied monthly retail scanner data and found that potato chip, cookie, and ice cream sales all increased in Colorado, Oregon, and Washington after recreational marijuana became legal in those states. Chip sales increased 5.3%. Isn't that just amazing? (laughs) We're here talking about uh, legalization of cannabis with Michael Litchfield. Michael is the Managing Director of Think Lab Consulting. Again, Michael, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. This is just a reminder about the munchies. Mm -hmm. Apparently, uh, um, uh, there's a scientific explanation to this, right? Yeah, as I said, lots of of impacts of legalization. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Well, listen, before the break, we were talking about houses that were grow-ops, mold issues, electrical issues, things like that. Uh, A question came up on one of my feeds last week Mm -hmm. from a realtor asking, uh, you and I are just having a conversation here because this is not your area of of expertise, although, you you know. I'm an interested observer. You're an interested observer, right? I mean, my area of expertise is in in regards to the legal aspects here, but uh, but the cannabis industry uh, in general is is an area of interest. And I'm actually uh, currently engaged in a PhD uh, around cannabis regulation, so definitely an interested observer. (laughs) So, So this realtor asked the question on one of our feeds, uh, how much of a price adjustment is necessary for a house that was a grow-up? Mm. I'm not sure if she was representing a buyer wanting to buy it or a seller, but it's interesting reading the responses that other realtors had. And one of the things that we do know in the real estate industry is that banks currently are not financing properties that were identified as grow-ups before. Mm-hmm. So you, you need to have cash if you're going to buy one of these things. Right. Uh, because there's too many unknowns. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's risk factors for banks. But um, another agent brought up a story about the fact that he had an offer on a property. I think it was here in Victoria. And it turned out the garage, which was detached from the house, mm-hmm. had been used as a grow op. And the bank wouldn't give him financing 
the buyer find it, even though it had nothing to do with the house. It was a separate detached garage. Um, but I guess where I'm getting to here is there's there's all these factors that are coming into play with the legalization of cannabis. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, and and to, when the one you brought up with uh, dealing with the bank and mortgage financing is definitely uh, a, a live issue. Insurance is another one of those issues as well. Oh goodness, yeah. Uh, um, the interesting thing with uh, with well, we'll st- let's start with banking is that uh, prior to legalization, there was a lot of hand wringing, a lot of um, people not sure how the banks were going to deal with that. And, and if you actually, if you look online, you'll find a lot of articles uh, with a lot of fear in them. Um, but what we've actually seen, CMHC has come out and said that... That's the Canadian Housing and Mortgage Corporation. Exactly. They've yeah. come out and said, and then they're the insurer of a uh, significant amount of mortgages in, in the country. They've come out and said they will uh, insure homes where marijuana is grown. Now, now one of the, the distinctions we have to draw here is between an illegal grow up, as we, as we discussed, one that's like a large scale operation and legally grown growing, you know, four plants that, that people are allowed to grow now. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, consternation about how the banks are going to deal with this. But so far, it seems like um, the CMHC has come out and said that they're fine with insuring. Uh, and uh, they're, they're, I haven't read all of the uh, mortgage, standard mortgage terms for all banks, but it doesn't seem like there's major concerns for those who are growing legally. Uh, all right. Um, well, let's touch on that. So, because uh, you just uh, referenced, because it's after October 2018 right mm-hmm. now, cannabis is legal in Canada. Uh, what can somebody grow if they choose to grow in their homes? So up to up to four plants, um, and that's per dwelling house and dwelling, not per person. Per no, not per person. Yeah. So it's per dwelling uh, dwelling house, which is a defined term uh, within the legislation, uh, and it does include outbuildings, uh, as you mentioned, with the detached garage. Uh, okay. So you can't grow four in your in your home and then four in your garage. Okay. It also includes actually. Um, uh, recreational vehicles as well. So you can't have four in your RV and, oh and four goodness. in your house. Right. Um, but that's all laid out in the law. It is all laid okay. out in, in the law. Yes, Interesting. Um, no, but the thing that it does not say is the size of the plants. Right. So that was, uh, there was a restriction actually in, in the original sort of iterations of the legislation, but that was removed. So there is no restriction on size now. Okay. So you're allowed to grow four plants, and this is for recreational use. For recreational use. Uh, that's uh, correct. Okay. So I guess it leads to the question, since cannabis is legal and people can buy it in government-approved retail outlets now, Mm -hmm. why would somebody want to grow in the house? Because we've discussed the fact that uh, having having plants like this indoors and introducing moisture is not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just like the craft, uh, the craft brew market, or the, oh, yeah. the home home uh, wine makers. Um, that's one of the open questions. How 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 many people will actually be growing at home? It's widely considered it will probably be a smaller market. Again, much akin to the the, the home brew or home wine making uh, market. So uh, most people think it's not not everybody is going to be starting to grow you know their home plants, but there will definitely be an interest from the the hobbyist uh, side. I I think. Well, because well, that goes back to this whole, right now that it's legal, what does that mean to our society? Like, are, are, are we going to become 
uh, overrun by you know, pot smoking individuals. We we haven't found that. Right? Well, exactly, and I, I think there's a lot of concern, especially around uh, the the time of legalization around October. And again, again, it came up in in some of these technical areas, like with mortgages or insurance or uh, stratas is another area where there was a lot of concern. Um, but but I think a lot of the fears have not not been played out. Um, the world didn't end, and uh, we still uh, are productive as a society and and moving forward. So uh, I think some of these uh, some of the concerns were uh, a little overblown. And, and again, when we look at things like insurance, mortgage, strata, there was a lot of fear, but it seems to have uh, subsided somewhat. Yeah, I, I, I read a quote by somebody who said that it's funny because British Columbia, when you think about it, uh, because it's been part of our culture for so long, uh, we have been responsible cannabis users. So, mm-hmm. you know, the legalization uh, here in the province really did nothing to change um, lifestyle. Right? Yeah, I mean, one, one of the areas in law that everyone was really concerned about was uh, was employment and are people going to show up to work, uh, you know, after in, indulging. Yeah. And uh, and that, again, really hasn't hasn't played out. I mean, if you, if there were Because the kind everyone's of, responsible users before right. anyways. Yeah. And if they were the kind of person that would have done that before, they're the kind that would do it now. It's not as though people have just uh, lost all sense of responsibility. Well, so a quick question here, just before we go to a break. Um, now that it's legalized, what does that mean to the um, to the to policing and law enforcement. That's a big question, um, and and that again still sort of remains to be seen. So in some ways, it's it's taken off a large burden, which one of the was one of the main reasons for the legalization was to uh, to really put a dent in the illicit trade. So it's taken away a policing burden from that perspective, mm-hmm. but it's also created other burdens in in terms of uh, perhaps um, driving under the influence or or other areas where they'll need yeah, to because be some it's legal now. You still can't drive under the influence exactly. of this. It's just like it's just like alcohol, which is legal. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. So it's shifted the burden uh, a little bit, I would say. Interesting. We're here uh, chatting with Michael Litchfield uh, about the legalization of cannabis here in Canada and how it relates uh, to your home and real estate. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to be talking about stratas and the use or cultivation of cannabis in strata buildings or complexes. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Hi there, this is The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. We're talking about the legalization of cannabis and how it relates to you, where you live, whether it's your home, your condo, if you're renting and are, are a tenant. Of course, the laws changed in October of 2018. And we're talking today with Michael Litchfield just on this topic. Michael, again, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So, of course, one of the things that did change, because we talked uh, in the very first segment about the property condition disclosure statement mm-hmm. that people need to fill out. The wording has changed a little bit since the uh, s- since cannabis became legal. Uh, and now the wording says, uh, ha- oh, I had it here a second ago. Uh, has the property been used to grow marijuana other than as permitted by law? Correct. Yeah. Right. So they, so they still ask the question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's they're really going for those illegal grow ops um, and really trying to raise awareness for a potential buyer if there has been large scale uh, cultivation going on. Okay. Now, we've talked about a number of things today. You know, legalization, um, uh, grow operations. You know, the risk. There are risks mm-hmm. when looking at buying a house that has been used to cultivate uh, cannabis before. Absolutely. Uh, we've talked about the fact that four plants is legal. All right. Now. Uh, for those who are living 
uh, for instance, in, a, in an apartment, mm-hmm. whether it's a strata or whether it's a rental, because we, we have listeners who are, are, are renters as well, tenants, mm-hmm. right? Um, this brings up some other things, too. Uh, for instance, uh, your neighbor's use of cannabis, right? Right, Because many buildings have no smoking bottles, mm-hmm. right? Uh, does the use of medicinal cannabis for medicinal purposes overrule non-smoking bylaws in buildings? Right. So it's somewhat of a complex question. But let's I mean, start from the basic concept that a, a strata can limit uh, smoking of tobacco. It can limit smoking of marijuana through the passing of bylaws. Uh, it can do the same for growing. Uh, there's certain uh, ability for landlords to to restrict as well, which we we can talk about. Um, but it becomes uh, a little more complex when we move into the medical field, and and there's a lot of answers. Uh, there's a lot of questions we don't have the answers to at, at this point because it's still new. Because it, yeah. it is still relatively new. But generally speaking, um, the, the medicinal use of marijuana may override uh, certain bylaws. So um, there's general human rights protection in place for those who have uh, mental or physical disability, uh, the uh, requirement to use medicinal marijuana may fall on into this. And, and I use the word may because because we're still so n- brand new, we don't have a lot of case law, we don't have a lot of human rights tribunals decisions that really uh, set out the four corners of this. But uh, it's quite clear in the recreational side that there is the ability to restrict uh, use, growing, uh, smoking, uh, but in the medicinal side it's much less clear and it's very likely that uh, certain bylaws might be able to be struck down, uh, certain restrictions might not be able to be upheld if we're dealing with the, the medicinal side. Uh, now that doesn't mean that medicinal marijuana gives people a blank check to just do whatever they want. There is going to be You're restrictions. You're still going to be a good neighbor. Exactly. Right. There's, there's you know rules around reasonability and rules about interfering with the neighbor's use of their property, their quiet enjoyment is the term that's used. So there's definitely still going to be some restrictions, but the medicinal side is the mu- more complex where there's less clear answers there. Yeah. Well, and of course there, there are, there are other methods than smoking. So, I mean, this is the whole other conversation about edibles and all that, which still has not, has not, has not been, um, but approved by the well, or... so edibles are not legal as of yet. They no. they will likely be on October of this coming year, 2019. Um, but but this does bring up the question. So and there has been some case law actually at the Civil Resolution Tribunal uh, where uh, there has been an individual smoking marijuana. They uh, the strata had a bylaw to to stop that. The individual um, asserted that it was for medicinal use. Um, but the actual tribunal found at the end of the day that because he couldn't prove or did not bring proof that smoking was necessary that they, the the tribunal was not the tribunal was not willing to uh, concede that he had to smoke marijuana because he could have taken it in a different way in other ways exactly yeah. but again that's one case it's and it's pretty much the only one out there right now in British Columbia yeah so many things right now mm-hmm. yeah but but it is a big question because of course again we are a clean air uh, region uh, non-smoking bylaws are quite common nowadays in, in strata buildings. Absolutely, and, and in, in public places. And uh, the law in regards to cannabis actually puts a fair amount of restrictions on where it can be smoked in uh, public places, parks, vehicles, um, boats, in fact. And so all of those you are not allowed to, to uh, smoke cannabis in those areas. Okay, might this be the time to bring up vaping? Because that's a whole different thing, right? Yeah, and so uh, most of the bylaws, especially from a municipal perspective, cover vaping. Uh, 
Um, so in, in regards to smoke. We should take a quick second here just to describe vaping for those who might not know. Sure. So uh, when, when marijuana is smoked, it's lit on fire, uh, essentially. Like a cigarette. Uh, like a cigarette. Yep. And uh, vaping essentially is just the application of a lower level of heat. Uh, to, to the marijuana. So it doesn't actually light it on fire, but it releases um, some of the, the compounds within the marijuana. It's like an electronic device. It is yeah. an electronic device. It's sort of a heating plate, for lack of a better uh, way to describe it. Okay. Um, and it, it, it just applies that lower level of heat. Okay. Um, and so uh, vaping is different from smoking, and the laws, most of the laws capture vaping. But very interestingly, uh, in regards to residential tenancy, um, there, there was a uh, well, essentially, when uh, when cannabis was legalized, residential there was amendments to the residential tenancy law that if you had a non-smoking of tobacco um, uh, clause yeah. in your tenancy agreement, then that would apply to cannabis. Okay. But interestingly, it doesn't apply to vaping of oh. cannabis, just to the smoking of cannabis. So okay, uh, that that's a little bit of an interesting uh, gap there when we when it comes to vaping. So then is this something that maybe landlords should be aware of when they are putting together their tenancy agreements? Absolutely. So the landlords really need to be aware of this issue. Uh, so when the law changed in October, there were um, uh, some consequential amendment, amendments to the Residential Tenancy Act. So essentially it prohibited uh, growing. So um, there is sort of a retroactive uh, prohibition on growing cannabis uh, in your rental unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you had a non-smoking tobacco clause in your uh, tenancy agreement, then that actually would apply to cannabis as well. Now, the thing for landlords to really be aware of and now is that going forward, they have to deal with this in their residential tenancy agreement. So there's no sort of automatic prohibitions going forward. So when a, when a landlord takes on a new tenant, they have to have that conversation. They have to make sure that any restrictions that they want to put are put in that residential tenancy agreement at the time. They can't just assume that it's covered. Yeah. I- exactly. So yeah. the landlords have to be live to this issue. It has to be addressed specifically in their tenancy agreements. Yeah, and the other factor to consider too, I guess, is if it is a condo and there are bylaws in place, the mm-hmm. landlord can't just assume that the bylaws would capture everything. It, it, it's something that they should include in their tenancy agreement. Absolutely. So the landlords need to be really clear in their residential tenancy agreement any kind of uh, reasonable restrictions that they want to place, whether that's on the smoking or growing of cannabis, and that that has to be addressed. Yeah, you know, it just it brought up something for me too because uh, for Airbnb users, you know, I, I use Airbnb every once in a while. Often it's you know no smoke, and that's pretty clear. I don't smoke, so it's not a big deal, anyways. But I wonder if that also covers what we're talking about right now. Yeah, Airbnb is a, is a whole different area. So, uh, you know, it's not covered under the Residential Tenancy Act. Yeah. Um, so lots of different issues in, in the Airbnb context. Oh, yeah. it just keeps on going. Uh, we're here with uh, Michael Litchfield uh, from Think Lab. Um, actually, tell us more about your operation. So what uh, what is it you do? Sure. So uh, we're, we're not a traditional law firm in, in, in any way, shape, or form. What we focus on is uh, legal education. So uh, we provide legal education seminars, workshops in, in a wide variety of contexts. So we, we as, uh, again, we met through working, I work with a lot of realtors in, in the real estate industry. Uh, I work in uh, with board members in the nonprofit sector and, and 
and again, uh, since since legalization, we've been doing a lot of work in the cannabis field. So uh, that's providing education to uh, professionals who may have to deal with cannabis, like property managers or realtors, but also uh, to strata corporations, uh, to uh, to retail outlets, uh, to to government entities. So well, and you're you're busy doing other things too, because you're a director of the business law clinic, the faculty of law at University of Victoria, right? Um, uh, an adjunct professor with the uh, with University of British Columbia. That's correct. So I teach real estate law uh, and and corporate commercial law there as well. Yeah, and and a number of other things. You've been on boards, so you serve. Uh, um, and governance is something we talked about before, which is one of your areas of expertise, right? Absolutely. So I mean, the the, the field of um, this is a huge topic as well. But uh, you know, there's 27,000 nonprofit organizations in in uh, British Columbia alone. They all have boards, and uh, often their level of legal knowledge is not not quite as high as it should be. So our, again, I think lab, our real passion is that legal education and and getting that in the hands of people so that they can do their jobs better, um, you know, conduct uh, themselves and their professions in a, in, a, in a way that complies with the law. So Yeah, and be, because you, you were a practicing lawyer and now you're you're outside of that and you're uh, consulting in mm-hmm. these areas. Still technically a practicing lawyer, but yeah. <laughs> but spending my time uh, on the educational side. I really, I feel that uh, it really assists people if you can give them some knowledge uh, that they can go forward with rather than just having, to, you know, obviously you're going to need some legal advice at some point, but uh, often it's just providing that base level of knowledge that can help people do their jobs better. Yeah, now for our listeners, of course, if, if they need help with their real estate purchase or something, that's not what you do. Absolutely not. Yeah, so this is, for instance, they would call the Sicko Law Group, which Absolutely. is our sponsors for the show, right? Um, yeah, very, getting back to uh, the topic at hand here, though, uh, very interesting. Uh, of course, we're seeing a lot of these uh, retail outlets popping up. Mm-hmm. Um, where are we going with this? Like, what uh, what does the future hold? Yeah. So, for those who don't know, in uh, each province is able to uh, to to set up the, how how cannabis retail works. Uh, so it's a little different in every province. In, in the province of British Columbia, they've chosen to follow the model of alcohol. So uh, there's a central distribution, uh, which which is run by government. Uh, so everybody who is going to be retailing must purchase through that central government distribution. Uh, the uh, again, much like alcohol, the the province has created uh, cannabis stores that they're going to run, but they're also going to allow private stores. Um, to like run private liquor well. stores. Exactly, yeah. like private liquor stores. And, and I ju- they, they actually are quite good at updating the applications, and there's about 500 applications in the pipe right now wow. uh, for these types of stores. Uh, but interestingly, I think less than 15 that have been approved, only one on Vancouver Island. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a slow process. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I have bumped into because uh, I do a fair amount of work uh, in this with seniors, mm-hmm. in the, this, the senior uh, segment of the real estate market, uh, and I have heard cases of um, seniors actually now uh, trying this as alternative medicine. I would say, and this is again from just uh, not an expert in this area, but observation. Mm-hmm. I would say that's one of the largest segments that I've that I'm running into. So when I am out doing cannabis-related education, it obviously starts the conversation. <laughs> uh, and and for some people who you know might not otherwise have the conversation, will will talk to me about how they're using it to assist them with sleeping or you know whatever whatever other ailments that they're that they're trying to uh, to help. Well, Michael, if anyone uh, needs to reach you or would like to contact you, uh, how can they do that? 
Sure. So uh, our, our website is thinklab.education. So no.com there, dot .education. Uh, so thinklab.education is, is our website. Our contact information is on there. Yeah. Um, that would probably be the best way to, to reach out to us. Great. Well, su such a big topic. Uh, I'm glad that you came because I had questions as well, too, and, and you cleared up a number of things for me, and I hope the listeners uh, did as well. Um, but I uh, hope to have you on again uh, another time as things move on. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, and to the rest of our listeners, I'll be here for you this time next week.